We'll be in 2 Corinthians 5. In 2 Corinthians 5, something has happened. Uh, Paul is making a a transition here, transitioning from um, explaining to this Corinthian church the reasons why all the suffering he's engaged in, all all the various trials are really... Not that big a deal. His losses and his crosses have truly ceased to matter for this man. For many reasons. First, he, he shows them that even in his weakness, God has made him strong. It is in his very weakness that uh, he is able to pour out the truth that is in him. This treasure, he calls it. This treasure of the gospel. Um, and as God crushes him as a minister, uh, the treasure is more easily dispensed to those whom he serves. So that their persecution of him, uh, the difficulties that arise from the false teachers in the church, all actually serve God's glorious purpose. But then in chapter 5, he, he changes. He's, he's talking about why he doesn't lose heart. Uh, that his inner self is being renewed day by day. But then he says that this light momentary trouble is preparing an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And this is really uh, where he, he rests for a bit in chapter 5, is talking about the hope that he has in heaven. So I'm going to read chapter 5, starting in verse 6 through 16. So would you please stand for the reading of God's holy and inspired word, this word for you this day. So we are always of good courage, and we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope is known to your conscience also. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Amen. Please be seated, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Let us pray.
Lord, we come to you as a needy people. We come to you as sheep who are straining to hear the voice of our shepherd. We come to you as those whose hearts are hardened, whose minds are clouded and distracted and tempted even now with so many things. We pray that you give us clear vision, that you unstop our ears, that you soften our hearts, that by the power of your Holy Spirit we would be touched, we would be changed, we would be convicted, we would be encouraged. Lord, pour out your Spirit upon us. Give us a spirit of understanding. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, in Jesus' name, amen. In verse 10, Paul talks about appearing before the judgment seat of Christ so that one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Last week we touched on this, how for someone who doesn't have faith in Christ, this is a judgment seat of wrath. It's a a judgment seat of justice. It's God's perfectly righteous and just working out of recompense, and it's exact. Not any more or any less will each person receive in hell for what he's done on earth. But for the believer, the judgment seat of Christ is a judgment seat of obedience. How well have you loved God? How well have you used what God has given you? How well have you served God? He speaks of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, talking about this, this judgment seat of obedience. He says in verse 12 of chapter 3, If anyone builds on the foundation with gold or silver or precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, this day of judgment. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So for the believer, this is the judgment that Paul is referring to for himself, And that's why he says that based on that, he knows the fear of the Lord. Based on that, he knows what it is to fear the Lord. Now, this fear is not a fear of of terror. It's not for the Christian. It's not a fear like you would have of a, a murderer who's roaming the neighborhood or an executioner or something like that. No, this is a fear that is based on the holiness, the the power, and the majesty of God. It is this fear that causes Paul to persuade others. It's a fear that has an impact on how he lives. Indeed, anyone who has a, a knowledge of God and a fear of God is going to be changed. The more you know God, the more you know who he is, the more you will have a reverent awe for him, a pious reverence for God. 
Certainly the, the pendulum of views of God has, has throughout the ages it swung back and forth between the ultimate fear of God and ultimate familiarity with God. Right? And the Bible teaches both. Yes, he is a personal God. Yes, he is my God. Yes, he is my light. He's my Savior. And we should seek to know him. But it also teaches that he is holy. He's holy and so different from us in every way, apart from us. Not like us in any way. Indeed, his communicable attributes, the things about us in the created order, the, the image bearing that we do, we, we, might, we might be given a little taste of some of the attributes of God. But even these are so warped and distorted, they can only point us to heaven. They can only point us to the author of these attributes, to the, to the ultimate essence of each attribute. You have love. You have love in your heart. You're created to love. Love is an attribute of God. But your love is so different from God's because His is perfect. His is holy. His is all that He is. And it's the same for each of the communicable attributes. But seeing God revealing Himself in the Scriptures, we know God more. And as you know Him, you will begin to understand that, number one, Christ is coming again. He's coming again. And at that time, we will all face judgment. Each and every one will face judgment. And this causes Paul to fear the Lord. Why? Why does he fear that moment? Because we will all give an account for all that we've done. And it's not a fear of, of, of disappointing people. It's the, the solemn desire that Paul has to hear spoken to him. Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. Enter into your rest. Now certainly all of us want to hear that. If you're in Christ, you want that. You want the Father, you want the Son to affirm you when you reach heaven and say, well done. Well done. You've, you've been faithful with five talents. Now I'm going to give you Five more. You've been faithful with, with ten cities. I'm going to give you ten more. You've been faithful with one. I'll give you one more. We all desire that. And knowing the fear of the Lord, Paul says, He persuades others. In other words, all of the gospel ministry that Paul is doing in Corinth and everywhere, He's doing not because he needs the favor of man, but because he fears God. He works for God. It reminds me of a story I've shared with you, I believe, once before. There was a young uh, seminarian. He was being hired by a church to be a, a pastor. Um, and being very young, usually before or at the ordination service, there's an uh, one of the elders, one of the senior elders comes up and talks to this young man and kind of gives a, a quick sermon uh, to him and tells him, these are the things that you, we expect of you. We need you to be a man of prayer. We need you to be a man of the word of God and to study. We need you to be faithful to God, etc. 
But the sermon, the instruction that this young man received was more along the lines of all the things that they expected him to do in his daily schedule and the things that he should preach and the things that he should focus on in his preaching and the things that the church really should be hearing more of and things that they should be hearing less of. And he was dismayed. And afterwards he stood up in front of them all and he said, I do want to please you all. God has called me to, to be your shepherd and I'm here to do my very best. But there's something you all need to remember. I fear God much more than I fear any man. And ultimately I serve him alone. And this is what Paul is saying. Because he fears God, he's going to continue to persuade others of the truth that he has known. He says what we are is known to God. God knows everything about all of us. What we are is known to God. So this is a, a message of encouragement for Paul as well as it is to us that God, the God who saved you, also knows everything about you. You're not going to surprise God with some confession of sin. You're not going to surprise God that your, your faith seems often uh, fickle or dis, you, you sometimes disparage your, your daily disciplines of godliness. You, you sometimes don't have a desire to pray or uh, you don't have a desire to read the word. You are known by God. You can always bring it all to the table. You don't have anything in you that he hasn't seen already throughout the ages in his people. You should be encouraged that he's called you and he will also bring whatever work he started to completion. What you are is known by God. But Paul says it's also known to your conscience. He's talking to the church. He says, you know, if you look at my life, what I've done and what I've done has not been done for my own glory, but for yours. So he says in verse 12, we're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be, be able to answer those who boast in outward appearances rather than what's in the heart. There were false teachers. There were those rising up against Paul in the church in Corinth, saying things about him, disparaging him. He answered some of those um, accusations in chapters 1 and 2. Paul, you're just, you're not stable. You're not sound. You're, you're very, um, you're kind of all over the map when it comes to your schedule. You told us you were coming, but you didn't come. You're not eloquent. Remember the, the, the place of Corinth, the church of Corinth was probably uh, filled with false teachers who were very eloquent, who, who were able to, to convince with their rhetoric and with their delivery. And indeed we find that they were manipulating the church for their own gain. But you see, they have nothing compared to Paul. Paul, in his sincerity of heart, completely outstrips and outweighs the false teachers. They boast about outward appearances. And Paul is saying, you should look at the heart of these men. And you should know my heart as well. 
It seems in verse 13 that Paul suggests that they were calling him crazy. They were saying he's, he's out of his mind, the things that he says. Because he says if, if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. And if we are in our right mind, it is for you. You remember when Paul was already arrested and Festus came and uh, I think Herod Agrippa was there and Paul is basically talking to them about his charges, the charges that had caused him to be arrested and he's sharing the gospel with these men, these, these kings, these rulers. And at the end of it, uh, one of them says, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning has, has made you crazy. Well, did he really mean that Paul was somehow mentally not stable, that he was out of his mind? Is that what he really meant? No, what he was saying was, this is fantastic. In other words, it's, it's unheard of that you would try to convince we two kings to be converted. The claims you make upon our lives are outrageous. You're out of your mind. And Paul seems to be responding to that same accusation that came from the church in Corinth. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. This is an encouragement for us as well. How many times have you been in the world? Have you been at work? Have you been out and about? How many times have, have you been um, maybe tempted to be ashamed at Christ, at speaking about Jesus, uh, talking about what He's done for you? And if you do have these thoughts, you know that the Holy Spirit convicts you almost immediately. You should be courageous when you talk about Jesus. You should never be ashamed to talk about the hope you have in heaven. Well, this is my, you know, he's my supervisor or, I mean, these are situations we all face, right? Unsaved people that you work with, that you work for, unsaved family members that you're afraid of. It's all the same. It's life as a Christian. And we should be courageous. Yes, we need to be winsome. We need to be convincing. We need to be loving. But we should never be ashamed. We should never be embarrassed. And if people think we're crazy, if people think you're silly or foolish, you're in very good company. And if you're persecuted, Jesus says to rejoice and be glad. So not only does Paul find great confidence and motivation in knowing God and knowing the fear of God, but he's also motivated by the love of God. We see that in verse 14. This is also a great motivation in his life. He says, the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls us. Notice he doesn't say the love he has for Christ. This is, this is God. He's understanding more about God. And he says the love of Christ controls us. This word, this Greek word for controls, it's the same word that is used when, you remember when Jesus is walking through the middle of one of, of the towns of Israel and there's such a crowd around him that it says the crowd is pressing against him. You remember that? That's that word. So it's as if Paul is saying, the love of Christ is pressing around me. And if you've ever been in a crowd like that, you know that, that you can't not stop 
keep walking. You have to go where the crowd is pushing you because they're all around you and you just have to keep going. If you've ever left a football game at a big stadium and there's just thousands and thousands of people all walking in the same direction, you have to go with them. And to get out of sync, to, get, to go counterflow is almost impossible. You're going to get hurt. Paul says the love of Christ is like that. It controls him. It's surrounding him. And it's, it's pushing him to persuade others. It's pushing him to live like Christ. He says, because we have concluded this. So it's controlling me. This love is controlling me because I understand it more. And what does he understand? That one has died for all. This is Christ. That one has died for all. Jesus Christ. The death of Christ for a Christian is something that motivates us. Why? Because we understand that He did not have to leave the Father's side. He willingly came to the earth and laid down His life for His people. I want to spend just a moment talking about the word all here. Uh, this is one of the, the scriptures that is used by those who, who maybe don't receive the, the doctrine of election as it's presented throughout the scriptures or just don't like it. They say, look, this, this says that one has died for all. See, Jesus died for all people. Well, the first rule I think you have to use whenever you're looking at a verse like this is, number one, look at the context. Look at the, the context of this particular scripture. Um, if you've ever seen someone who's gotten a medal at the Olympics, you know, and there's cameras from hundreds of countries or maybe dozens of countries all around this person. I'm thinking of maybe Michael Phelps when he won the, the gold medals in China. And there were just tons of cameras and tons of countries. And he says something like, I'm so proud to be here and represent my country. And this medal is not just for me, it's for all of you. Something like that. So who is the all? Is it the people in Denmark or the people in China or the people in Japan? Is that who Mark or, uh, Michael Phelps was talking about? No, it was the American people who were listening, right? So in the context of what he was saying, it's very clear, it's very evident who this was. The all referred to the people whom he was talking to. Well, we can see just going through this passage, the context of this particular statement. He died for all, what? That those who live might no longer live for themselves. The all are the people who live, who are spiritually alive. That's who the all are. Um, Verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. This is the the people who the all are. This is the all Paul is referring to. All those for whom the old has passed away and the new has come. All this is from God, he says. In verse 19, he says, That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to Himself. The world meaning everything in all of creation. That's what that word means. Cosmos means all of the universe. Is that what he's doing? He's reconciling every single person, every single animal, every single rock, every single star to himself. 
No. He's reconciling people to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. So you see, the context is critically important when you read a statement like that. Especially if you're confronted with someone who's telling you, well, look, this means that Christ died for all people who have ever lived. The other important thing to remember when you're looking at difficult scriptures or people are presenting things that seem wrong to you, like this would, would probably strike you as, well, I, I don't think that's right, but you don't know why. Well, the second rule of interpretation is to go to a more clear part of scripture and use more clear parts of scripture to help understand the less clear parts of scripture. Because it's not all equally clear. So if someone really wanted to talk to you about election, this would probably be not the place you would start. You would maybe go to Ephesians chapter 2 or Romans chapters 8 and 9 and and begin to understand God's great love. Because that's what election is, is. It's an act of God's love. Not leaving all of us to perish. So back to the text. The love of Christ is compelling Paul. It's controlling him. Why? Because he's concluded... That one has died for all. Christ came and died for his people, for all whom he came to save. And therefore, all have died. In other words, he took the death that I should be, I should have had, and now he's calling me to die to myself. Both things seem to be in view. And we know that from the last part of the verse, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul says that because he understands more of what Christ did for him, it motivates him not only to persuade others, but just not to live for himself at all. And this really is is a definition of a Christian. It's one of the definitions of a Christian, certainly. That a Christian is someone who doesn't live for himself, but he lives for Christ. A Christian is someone who, who is put aside his own desires and he desires what Christ desires. He doesn't want to do what he wants. He doesn't want to be a slave to his own passions. He wants to be a slave to Jesus. For all of us who understand what it means to be a Christian, certainly we all will want more and more and more to live for Jesus. It's a, it's a phrase that's thrown around in Christian circles and in churches all the time. Yeah, I want to live for Jesus. I want to live for Jesus. And we all, I think, in theory would say, yes, we want to live for Jesus. But where does it actually, where does it actually roll down? Where do the, the gears actually touch with your life? Where does the rubber meet the road? When you're driving by someone and, and you see that they're broken down on the side of the road and they need help and you're in a hurry and you don't have time, but you know that you should show compassion to that person and you pull over to help them. Or you're sitting at work and you know that this person is lazy and this person you're working with is lazy and, and always taking advantage of the situation and your boss comes in and he's got a mission, he's got something that has to be done And you know it's this other guy's turn to do this thing, but you know the mission is so important and you love your boss so much. Or you just want to do the right thing and you just take it and you say, let me have that. I'll do that. 
I know I'm busy, but I will do this well. Or you're just sitting down reading. Or you're watching something on television. And your children or your wife or your husband says, Honey, would you please do this? And with a good attitude, you close your book. You turn off the television and you say, say Yes, I will. I'll be right there. Why? Because the love of Christ controls me. I know that Christ left everything that was glorious and He came to earth so that I might no longer live for myself, but for Him. So when the alarm goes off in the morning and you know you need to get up and you need to spend time in prayer and you need to spend time in the Word and your flesh says no, No, you need to sleep a little longer. May the love of Christ control us. And this changes how we look at other people as well. He says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. When Paul says we, he's he's primarily talking about himself. You remember, Paul was the one who was standing and watching the cloaks of those who stoned Stephen. He thought Stephen was a a Jewish heretic for following Jesus. He thought Jesus was probably a heretic. He was a blasphemer. He was probably punished rightly. He viewed Jesus from a fleshly perspective, a worldly perspective. But no longer. In the same way he now looks at people. When he looks at people who who God brings into his life, he doesn't look at them only from a human perspective. And we also should do this. When you meet someone, remember that God has brought this person in front of you to talk to you. There's no accidents. If, If there's a person that you were able to spend time with this week, that was all on purpose. Why? Well, God wanted you to talk to them. Probably to share the light with them. To create friendship. To seek their good and not your own. I think it's often hard too because we live in kind of a a consumeristic culture where when you go in, I mean, if there's people behind you, yeah, you want to be polite. But the person in front of you checking you out, Taking your money, he's a person. She's a person. Love them. The person you bump into on the street, that's a person. Slow down. Love that person. Don't regard them from a fleshly manner anymore. But this is an eternal moment that the Holy Spirit has orchestrated for now for you to speak into their lives some, something of goodness, something of God's love. May the love of Christ so control us that we always will view these situations in the right manner with an eternal perspective. And maybe, just maybe, maybe you will have an opportunity to tell them about the goodness of Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about sharing your testimony, which is fine. I'm talking about sharing the gospel. Have you ever wondered why people are hurting? Why people are suffering? 
Certainly the answer might be you need this medicine, you, you need some counseling, those things will help. But ultimately they will not fulfill, they will not satisfy, they will not bring contentment. You have the treasure. You've been equipped. Be ready to share the good news that Almighty God left heaven and was incarnate as the Son of God and born of the Virgin Mary. And why did He do this? Why did He leave His glory? Because you're hopeless without any hope in yourself. You will perish. You will face the judgment seat of Christ and you will be condemned to hell. But if you put your faith in Christ, if you trust in Christ alone, He will not turn you away. So turn your hearts to Jesus Christ. As you consider the fear of the Lord, may it motivate you to persuade others. And as you consider the love of Christ for you, may it also motivate you to live well in this life. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful that all things happen according to your perfect plan. We thank you that nothing happens, not even the smallest bird falling from the sky, not the slightest breeze apart from your power and your presence, your goodness and your love. The nations are as nothing before you. All the people of the earth, no matter how powerful they are, are like grasshoppers. They are nothing. And yet you have given us a knowledge of the truth. You have brought us to a place where we love you, we serve you. Indeed, it's a precious treasure that we have because of your Holy Spirit. This, This light within us, this knowledge of the love of Christ. Lord, may it control us, we pray in Jesus' name.